0: Would you take your Bibles, and let's look at Matthew chapter 5 uh, today. Matthew chapter 5, I think this is a very familiar passage. In fact, Ms. Courtney just read our, our scripture for this morning, and you saw it on the cover of your bulletin as well. As you're turning there, let me just offer a, another word of prayer, okay? Let's pray together. Father... Please be praised in our lives. Despite our sin, you have sent Jesus to make us new. Each day we are being renewed, conforming and being made more like Jesus. We lack any goodness on our own. And you have enlightened us to know that we are to be grieved over our sin and live in humility and foster an appetite for righteousness and purity. And seek peace with others and offer mercy. And as we do this, we are being sent out into a decaying and rotting world to model and share that there's another way, and it's the Jesus way. It's in this lasting fulfillment, happiness and contentment is found. So please be honored as we use the influence that you've given to us to preserve your truth and provide light to this dark world. Amen. President Woodrow Wilson shared the following story. He said, I was in a very common place, and I was sitting in a barber chair, when I became aware that a personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in upon some errand as myself to have his hair cut. And as he sat in the chair next to me, every word that the man uttered, though it was not at least didactic, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done for me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the entire barbershop. They talked in undertones. They didn't know his name, but they knew that something had elevated their thoughts. I felt that I left that place as I should have left the place of worship. My admiration and esteem for Mr. Moody became very deep indeed. During this month of January, as a church family, what we've been doing is just reviewing back to basics. What are the pillars that our church is built on? We want to be Bible-saturated. We want everything that we do here to be about the Bible. Secondly, as we are reading the scriptures, that's going to drive us to humility and brokenness, to understand that we can't keep these scriptures apart from God's Spirit in our lives. This has also led us to consider the need for us to be among others in edifying relationships. This is what Zach hit on last week. And as we're doing all these things, this will lead us to a gospel witness that we will share. And I wonder if someone has spent an afternoon or a haircut with you at the barber shop, or a meal or an evening, what is it that they are left thinking of? That's a very convicting question for me as well. Well, let us look at our passage this morning as we look at chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. But I think, and I always think this way, before we just jump into this passage, it's helpful for us to understand that there is a context. If there is someone here today that would say, you know, I'd just really love to hear a summary of what does the Christian life look like? Is there a cheat sheet? Is there a a summary guide of that? There could be no better place to look for something like that than chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, that is called the Beatitudes. And that's the context that we have. I want to read those verses with you before we look at the passage for this morning. In fact, if you have your bulletin and you have that little insert that's a sermon outline, I've actually taken the liberty to copy and paste a paraphrase translation for you to read with me. So why don't you look at that, and this will give us an idea of what the Christian life looks like before we get to our passage this morning. It says this in chapter 5, verse 3 of Matthew, How happy are the humble-minded, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You see that uh, the eternal life, the Christian life begins... When we realize that there is no goodness within us. And that the moral burden is beyond what we can pay. And Jesus paid that debt with his blood. The second verse there says, How happy are those who know what sorrow means. For they will be given courage and comfort. Christians know what to grieve over. Our defiance, our rebellion, and sin against God. We experience joy when we're forgiven. The third beatitude is happy are those who claim nothing, for the whole earth will belong to them. Followers of Jesus are certain that all blessings in life have come from God's gracious hand. Even hardships are ordained and carried out for God's goodwill. The next beatitude says happy are those who are hungry and thirsty for goodness, for they will be fully satisfied. New life yields new appetites. No longer do we hoof down flesh-gratifying junk at the world's cafe. Now we feast on soul-satisfying truth of God and other grace-filled disciplines like prayer, worship, and fellowship. It goes on to read, "'Happy are the merciful, for they will have mercy shown to them. Christian relationships are altered, too. Having been forgiven, we forgive.'" And like God, we have a heart for the lowly and disadvantaged. The passage goes on to say, Happy are the utterly sincere, for they will see God. Christians strive for authenticity. They are not one person on social media and then another one at home. They are who they are, approachable, flawed, forgiven, hopeful, pressing forward. Happy are those who make peace. For they will be sons of God. Jesus' followers not only are making peace with God, but with others. And also serve as mediators when others are in conflict. And then listen to this. Happy are those who suffer persecution for the cause of goodness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus was without sin. He was always fair and trustworthy and loving. Yet he was misunderstood, slandered, persecuted, and killed. And then it reads, And what happiness will be yours when people blame you and ill-treat you and say all kinds of slanderous things against you for my sake? Be glad then, yes, be tremendously glad, for your reward in heaven is magnificent. They persecuted the prophets before your time in exactly the same way. So you, here you have a portrait of what the Christian life looks like. And the question before us this morning, loved ones, is in what way is this to be lived out? Do we take these truths and do we just uh, bring them to a, a science lab at a local high school and say, now, now put it into practice there? Or do we constrain ourselves to a, a classroom here at Highland Crest and say, let's talk about living it out there? Actually, what we're going to see is we're to take these truths from the Beatitudes and to put them to the mainstream. So now, having provided a bit of a context, let's look at our passage for today, where we're going to read it again, verse 13 through 16, where it says, "'You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored?' Now, as we look at this passage, we see two different metaphors that are placed before the reader or the hearer in the first century. The first is that of salt. So if you have an outline, here's your first point. Since the world is rotting and decaying, followers of Jesus are sent to be salt. Now, I acknowledge that there is a cultural gap here. We live in the day of refrigeration. If you're like me, you have a refrigerator in your kitchen. You may even have one in your garage or in your basement. We have a chest freezer in our garage. I'm not sure it's kicked in at all for about a month because it's been so cold. We have coolers with ice. In fact, we had a meal this past week that was put in that freezer in November. We can preserve food through Ice and refrigerators and freezers. But in the first century, what they had was salt. It was very common. In fact, I learned this week that in some cases, Roman soldiers were paid with salt. You've probably heard this expression that soldier is not worth his salt. Exactly. It was something that was very common for them. So, Here's the first point that we would make underneath that. Salt preserves. And we are to preserve truth. It is implied within this passage that the earth, the world around us, is rotting. It's declaying. It's getting worse and worse. And people, followers of Jesus, have been sent to preserve the morality. That has been put forward by the scriptures. This is our responsibility. Have you ever been around meat that spoils? Perhaps you've had electricity go off. And that steak, that hamburger, that fish, that venison has gone bad. And that's bad because it could be very expensive for you. Have you been around something that has rotted? Rotted. A couple decades ago, I was in my college years, and I went up to Ontario, Canada with my uncle and stepdad and his brother, and we went on a fishing trip. We took a boat on one lake, we drove to the shore of one lake, and we picked up that boat and we portaged to another lake, and as I was carrying the front of that boat, walking backwards, and my uncle Chris was on the back of the boat, and he was walking my way, I didn't know where I was walking, the path that we had was not well-groomed. And as we walked, suddenly I tripped over something and I looked and it was a moose carcass that had rotted. And there were flies and there was fur and there was a skeleton there. It was awful. It was nasty. This is what the Bible says of the world. It is not getting better. Yes, there is more and more sophistication, but am I the only one here? It seems that that sophistication is only allowing us to sin in new creative ways. The morality and values of our world are rotting and decaying. And what's God's solution? Followers of Jesus living out the gospel around them. Now, I don't know enough about the preservation process when it comes to salt, but I do know this. As salt was only useful when in contact with meat, we are only useful to the world when we are in contact with them. Salt had no purpose if it was just left in the pantry. Salt was only useful if it was applied to the meat or to the fish. And you and I, if we are the salt of the earth, we are only useful when we are around the world. And we can influence the world and preserve the truth that God has intended. I would call your attention again to verse 13, where it says... You are the salt of the earth. This word you is emphatic. In the Greek, it would say you and only you, followers of Jesus. This is your assignment to be the salt. There is no one else that's being called to this but followers of Jesus. You also notice that it says you are the salt. That is present tense. It's not, there'll come a day when you'll be the salt of the earth. It is right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been born again, if by the grace of God, these beatitudes in verses 3 through 12 are being lived out in your life, then you and no one else is to be the salt of the earth. Listen, the world may not know this, they need you because you have been sent here to preserve the morality, the truth of God's word. I believe that's what this is saying. The world is, is going to hell really fast. And there's nothing special about you, but there's something very special about the gospel that has been implanted in your life. And you, and only you, are to attach yourself to the world so you can influence it for the good. In the glory of God. Not only does salt preserve, salt also flavors, doesn't it? You see, it's not enough for us to read our Bibles in the morning, and I believe that you're many of you are doing that to be Bible saturated. And I say, Praise the Lord for that. I think as you're reading the scriptures, as you're listening to preaching, perhaps you're listening to good singing and music. As you're doing that, you'll you'll see your news feed. You'll see news headlines. You'll see something on the internet. Maybe you have an old newspaper, the, the Press Gazette, that comes your way. You'll see the discrepancy in what's going on in the morality of the world and the morality of God and the Scripture. You'll see there is a difference there. It's not enough for us just to know that that difference exists. It's not enough for us to get in our little Bible study groups and to complain about the differences that exist. What we have been called to is to be the salt, that we would go out and we would preserve the truth, the morality that God has given to us, and we would do it in a flavorful way. In recent years, I've actually looked forward to January and February. Why? I've looked forward to the sub-zero temperatures um, because I like ice fishing. And I've been waiting for the bay to freeze up really solid so we can go out ice fishing. And in those days of which God is particularly kind to me and my family, I could go out on my day off and, and catch enough fish to make a meal for our family, and it's a highlight of the whole day. And in the evening, as, as the fish have been cleaned and they've been fried, in that fry daddy with just the right batter at the right temperature for the right length of time, and they're brought out, and the boys are fighting over the fish, what is the first thing they do? Where's the salt? Why? Because they understand, at least in their view, that salt enhances the flavor of that fish. And you and I have been sent here to to enhance the flavor of those around us by showing the Jesus that is in our life. So we're not to do that in a belligerent way, in an obnoxious way, but in a winsome way. When I first got out of seminary, I left uh, the Fort Worth, Texas, the seminary, and we moved up to Flint, Michigan. And I would say within the first week or two of serving at that church, I served under a dear man named Pastor Ron Emerling. And there was a a man that had died. I don't even think he was connected to our church, but he was a friend of Pastor Ron's. And as we're driving to the funeral, Pastor Ron says, you know, this guy that we're doing this funeral for today was a different sort of guy. He professed to know Christ, but I'm telling you something, he was obnoxious. He was abrasive. Oh, he would share the gospel, all right, but he certainly didn't model it in his life. To tell you the truth, I didn't even like the guy. And now I'm doing his funeral, and he's like, sometimes that's going to (laughs) happen to you. And so what I'm saying is we can't be like that. We want to be the salt. We want to preserve the truth, but we have to do it in a loving, truthful, winsome way. Gracious way. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church of Colossae in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He said, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, there's something remarkable about this salt here in verse 13. It says you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now I am not a chemist and I've thought to myself how is that salt can lose its saltiness and I've concluded this there's only one way that that can happen, and that is if that salt has been mixed with other chemicals. And loved ones, there's only one way that you can lose your saltiness, and that's if you've been mixed with compromise and sin and worldliness. And you're, you're just not any good then. And you and I are not any good if that happens. The Bible says here that once you just throw that out, and it might just be trampled under our feet. So that's the first metaphor. It's salt. But it's not the only metaphor in our passage. There's another one here, it's found in verse fourteen through sixteen. And it says, You are the light of the world. So the, the second metaphor is that of light. So here's the second point in our message. It says, Since the world is in darkness, followers of Jesus are sent to to be the light. Whereas salt speaks of our morality, the world's morality, light speaks of truth, revelation, and instruction. We are to proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. A righteous life, that's salt, with a bold message, that's light, is a dynamic combination. Now, if you're listening attentively and you know some of your scriptures, you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, how is it that followers are supposed to be the light of the world? Didn't Jesus say in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How can this be? How is it possible that Jesus is the light, but He has called us to be the light? Maybe another illustration would be helpful. The moon has no light in and of itself, does it? The only light that we see at night uh, that the moon has is merely a reflection of the sun. Could I say it this way? That Jesus is the Sun. S U N. And the only light that our lives will bear is a reflection of the sun in our lives. There is one exception, and that is an eclipse. And an eclipse is when the world gets between the sun. And the moon. We are to be the light of the world. We are to reflect the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus around our world. But there could be a spiritual eclipse, can't there? Where the world can get in the way, dimming the light that we are supposed to have. There are three different expressions here in these verses that speak of where the light is to be shown. Let me handle them them in reverse order. You see there it says, in verse 15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. The first way that this light of the gospel, the light of Jesus is to be reflected in our life, is in our home. You see it there. No one would take a, a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, so it could give light to everyone in the home. You, you wouldn't take a flashlight and turn it upside down and put it on your dresser. Or if you're a parent, you wouldn't hand it off your cell phone that has a light on it because they're going out to the garage to find something. And if they come back and they leave the light on and flip it upside down, you'd be mad at them because they're burning up your battery. Light has meant to shine. It's meant to shine in the house. In the same way, we are to let the light, the gospel light, Jesus' light, shine in our home. And it also says here in verse 16 so that they may see your good works. And what are these good works that this light, this gospel light, exhibits? I think the context would be the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12. In our homes, this gospel light, the light of Jesus is to be reflected in our lives so that true repentance leads to true change. That there is to be a hungering of God that our children see from mom and dad. There's to be acts of mercy and forgiving others. There's to be authentic transparency, a reconciling of relationships and maintaining joy even in adversity. If I'm honest uh, I shared this with our group of men that were meeting during the Bible study hour just this morning And if I'm honest, I think it's easier for me to actually disciple men in our church than it is my own kids. <laughs> because my kids see me every day, and they see me at my high and low. But nonetheless, the gospel is to show, even in this broken life, where I come to my kids and say, you know, I, I messed up there. But that's not Jesus' fault. It's, God's still working on me. So let's just talk about what the Bible says about this. You know, one true man of God was a man by the name of Andrew Murray. He was a Scotsman who once served in South uh, uh, Africa. And he had 11 children that grew up in the adult life. And of those 11, five of the six sons became ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four of his daughters became ministers' wives. So of those 11, that's 9 that actually went into the ministry. Not bad. And in the second generation, there was even a better showing. Ten grandsons became ministers of Christ and 13 became missionaries of just the gospel shining into a man's life. This week, as I was thinking of this passage, I'm aware that there are some within our church that you may be the only light in your family. And you come to church faithfully, virtually every Sunday. And you look around, and I don't know what's going on in your heart, but you could look around and you see others that come with their spouse and their children and think, man, I wish I had that. That's what I've been praying for. Can I just speak a word of encouragement to you today? Continue to shine that light. Continue to persevere. Don't get discouraged. Continue to reflect the gospel light to your spouse and to your children, to your grandchildren. They are seeing a difference. Just continue to do that. And loved ones, if we're here with our families, could we this week just reach out to them and say, I I see that. And I value what's going on there. And we want to just pray for you. We want to encourage you. You are being the light to your family. So I said, know, I know what it's like. When I first became a Christian, I was on a secular college campus. It seemed like I was the only Christian there. I know what it's like to go to a workplace and where the profanity and God's name is being used for cursing and think, man, I'm the only one here. But God has put you as the light there. And in the same expression here, just as you are the salt of the earth, you and only you, you and only you are the light of the world. The world needs you to share the truth with them. Not only is the light to be shared in our home, but we share the light with our community as well. That's what we see here. You are the light of the world. And then it says, a city set on a hill cannot Be hidden. Probably all of us know what it's like to be traveling in the middle of the night out on the highway when it's really dark and there's hardly any light at all, and off on the horizon you see a a glow. And you know that there is a city there, there is a town there. Why? Because the light gives evidence. It says here that it cannot be hidden. A few weeks ago, our family for the first time went downhill skiing, and we were back where I'm from in a little community called Bruce, and we're top of the mountain. And you could look over the horizon and see maybe 20 or 30 miles. And as it was getting dark, you could see where the towns were. Why? Because of the glow of the lights. This is what it's saying. As the light of Christ is shining into your life, the gospel is being lived out in your life as you're living out these beatitudes, you are to share the love of Jesus, the love of the gospel with those around you. And we don't need to make this very complicated. How do we do that? By getting to know them. By being with them. By praying with them. By sharing meals with them through practical ways. Something that's just very effective is just taking an interest in their life and just saying, can I just share with you my life story? And I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Would would it be okay if I just take a few minutes and share with you how I became a Christian and just have a conversation with that? We are to be the light of the world. Why, why do we share this message on occasion? The need for us to, to go out and be the light. I'm learning this about leadership. There's something called mission adrift. you know what that is? It's that when a, when a church gets started, it's very clear why that church exists. Our mission statement is to know Jesus, to make Jesus known. We're here to disciple people. We're here to share the gospel with people. But you know what can happen over time? Is that there's just slight slight movements away from that, that original purpose. I've got a dear friend that's uh, planted a church. He's all about church planning, And he has said this. I'm not sure if the statistic is true, but I've heard him say it. Churches are eight times more evangelistic in the first five years of their church life. Church plants in the first five years are are eight times more likely to share the gospel. I think it's because they understand their original intent. But in the 10-year anniversary, a church could easily just be mission adrift, like they've lost sight. And then if you extend that 20, 30, 40, 60 years... It's always necessary for us to go back and say, hey, we're the light. We're the light to our community. This is what we are supposed to be all about. There's one other expression that we see here in this passage. It's to be the light in the family, our home. There's a light also in our community. But do you see it there also in verse 14? You are the light of the world. This is to expand not just to your home, not just to your immediate community, but to look beyond your immediate community and get on a plane and go to the world's. The gospel light is not confined to this local region, but to the world. And this was always God's design for Jesus. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, he said, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And God, speaking about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 49, 6, said, Is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you, Jesus, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So for I mean, just look at this with me. Am I doing this right? If this is really true, if we're supposed to be really the light, it's not only to our homes, it's not only to our community, but this is what it says. A light to the world, to the nations. How do you do that as a local church? Well, In our denomination, we're a part of what's called the International Mission Board. It's the largest mission sending agency in the world. It sends thousands of missionaries out. And several years ago, we said, how is it that we are to be a light to the nations? And they said, well, what churches used to do is every year they would send out people and just scatter them around the world. But what we would like you to do now is just to adopt a people group, adopt an area where you could commit to them for 10 years. And you would just build a relationship with them. And every year you'd send multiple teams there, smaller teams, that you could see churches planted. And so that's lettuce. us. ...to the nation of Senegal. And we find ourselves at a very opportune time... ...where there is an island that we have visited a few different times... ...and we have found that the people are very receptive to hearing the gospel. In fact, over a hundred people there have professed to be Christians. They've trusted Christ. But what we need now is the next step to see a church formed. The first Sunday of this month, I, I told you that in the last year... ...our church approved the purchase of a boat that could be used of a, a local island there that actually has a New Testament church and they could use that boat to go to this island that we are adopting called Neomun. And they could go over there on a monthly basis and go to these hundred or so plus people that have already professed Christ and there's many more that would probably want to hear the gospel and just work with them to you see a church established. Let me just show you a brief video here of the update of that boat. This is, this is the boat that you approved being built. And you see it has recently been painted. in the first part of the month, you saw that it was just what was called African Redwood. Um, you might be wondering,, oh, what in the world does that letter mean? that lettering mean? It just means the Jesus boat. And this is a boat that has been created with the funds of Highland Crest to take the message of Jesus to Neomoon Island and the surrounding islands so that we could be a light to the world. There is the boat, the first time it's been in the water. Now, it looks a little crooked at first, but don't worry. By the time it gets out there, you'll see it levels off. Our church approved not only the construction of this boat, but also purchased, I think, a 40, 45-horse Yamaha motor. And on this day, it was taken from that place where it was launched initially to Jogay Island, which was about a nine-hour boat ride. And there at Jogay Island is the church that is hosting it. And from there, the Neomoon Islands, about a 30- or 45-minute boat ride there where they can go and they can firm up the gospel seed that has been planted. This is a great opportunity for us church family to be the light to the world. Uh, monthly conversations are taking place with the missionary there, with Moses. And My hope is one day, if you are interested in, in sitting in on a video chat to hear how things are going there on Neomoon Island, you could and you could pray with Moses. I see us as just one member of a team there in Senegal. Think of a basketball team. There are five members on the basketball court. I think that we're, just, we're one of those players on the basketball court. There we have a An international missionary named Moses and his wife Beth, they oversee the work there. But there is also another player on Jogay. There's a church there that's just a 30, 45-minute boat ride. They're another player. They're on the mainland. There's a church there at Ziggishaw. They've got missionaries that are being raised up. Then they want to go as well. Now they have a boat to get there to help establish this church. in Highland Crest, you get to be a part of that. I would also tell you that, Lord Willing, we would like to plan a trip on the first week of May as well as the first week of November. They tell us that when we arrive, that we're celebrities there. And that when we go to Neamoon Island, we draw a crowd, and this allows us to be able to share the gospel. And then there are these local people, islanders, that are the same people group as the people in Neamoon, and they can say, "This is not just an American message. This is the truth." And you need to hear what they said. This truth has changed my life as well. So it's not just us going over there on our own. It's partnering with local Christians as well. And won't you want to be a part of that? So as we look at this passage, we're seeing that we're not only to be the salt, we're also to be the light. And why would we do this? Look at at the last part of this passage, and that answers that. In verse 16, "...in the same way, let your light shine before others." so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why do this? It's so that God could be glorified. We could be the salt, preserve this truth. We could be the light. People could hear the truth and become followers of Jesus and they could to sing his praises with their life. That's why we're doing this to give glory. This is why we are created. This is why we're here, to give glory to God. Maybe the best way to close is just by a, a little story. This past week, I listened to a biography of Eric Little. You probably remember that name. In 1924, he was the Olympic uh, runner, and he was a, a devoted follower of Jesus. And in that summer Olympics there in Paris, they had the, the heat, the 100 meters scheduled on Sunday, and because he was a Christian and was committed to keeping the Sabbath, he forfeited that 100-meter race. But in God's providence, there was a 400-meter race that was a little bit later in the week, and even though his strength was 100 meters and he didn't get the race in that, the 400-meter race he did participate in, and he won a gold medal, and he actually broke the world record in it. But that's not the whole story of Eric Little. His parents were missionaries to China. And after he had won this gold medal, he purchased a one-way ticket to obey the call of God on his life back to China. And for several years, he served as a missionary there at one of the schools as he, he taught uh, various things to children, was their chaplain. And because he just loved sports, he organized all sorts of different sports for the students there. Eventually, the upheaval of the political climate in China began to spill over, and it became an unsafe place. He had married a woman named Florence They had a couple of children, and because things had gotten so dangerous there, he sent his wife and two girls, and his wife was pregnant with a third girl, back to her home country of Canada while he remained there. He served there in the hospitals taking care of different people as they were injured in this civil war or war between Japan and China. There were one times where people would ask him, why are you considering caring for not only the Chinese but the Japanese? And as a part of him being salt, he said, I'll tell you why, because everyone has value in life. And then one day he got a note from Japanese that had now controlled that area there in China. And they said to him, listen, we're rounding every foreigner up. We're putting you on a train and we're taking you to a POW camp some 400 miles from here. So he loaded his stuff up. He went out to where he was supposed to meet, and he saw all these wealthy foreigners, many of them from Britain, where he was from, some in fur coats, some in in gold necklaces and diamond earrings, and he thought to himself, they have absolutely no idea what they're in store for. They were loaded up on a train, and the conditions of the train were just dire. It was awful conditions. It was overcrowded. He gave up a seat and he sat in the middle aisle as everyone else was riding to this POW camp some 400 miles away. And as he looked around at all the despondent faces, he thought to himself and then he prayed, Oh God, God, help me to be the light to these people. They arrived there at this compound, and because he was a racer, the, one of the first things he did is he walked off the dimensions of this compound, and he found it was 150 yards by 200 yards. And there were 1,800 people there, and the conditions were awful. There was no running water, there was no cleanliness. And all these foreigners were placed in this compound and to say, "Now fend for yourself." So Eric Little got together with some others and says, "We need to organize some chores. We need to organize some schooling, some activities. And so they had all sorts of games. And he did some teaching and he did some coaching and he did some officiating. They had things like rat capturing contests of just just dramatic things just to pass the time while they waited for the Americans to come in and rescue them. And as I was listening to the story and I was reading of the light and the salt that he was there, and how eventually he died there at age 43. There were many that, as they thought of Uncle Eric, the influence that he had there as the children would come, they thought, why was it, how was it possible that he was such salt and light there in the compound? One of the boys there was a boy named David. David would eventually become a doctor, Dr. David Mitchell, and he said this, None of us will ever forget this man who was totally committed to putting God first, a man whose humble life combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. And what was his secret? He unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord. That friendship meant everything to him. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp, early each morning, he and a roommate in the men's cramped dormitory studied the Bible and talked with God for an hour every day. And as I thought of his story, I thought, that's exactly what I'm trying to capture in this message. Here was a man that got up every single day and devoted an hour to being saturated in the Scriptures. God, speak to me through your word. And as he was doing this, he was humbled by the teaching and his, he was dependent on God's grace to help him carry out these teachings. We see that he not only did this by himself, but he did that with an other. So there was some uh, edifying relationships within his life. And as God was shining the light of this gospel into his life, he would go out in the world around him and be the light and he would be the salt to others. And I'd say, that's exactly an example for us. So this morning, as we just wrap this message up, I want to ask you a few questions. One, are you salty? In a Bible sense, are you one that is preserving the truth around you? Are you one that, well, adding flavor to the lives around you? Or... Has there been some mixturing in your life where you are combining it with sin and compromise and you have lost your distinctiveness? I would ask you, loved ones, how is the light in your life? Is it evident that the gospel, Jesus' light, is reflecting off yours onto others? Or are you experiencing some sort of a spiritual eclipse today, this season of your life? And so if if that's true of you, I'm just appealing to you to repent. I've been mixing it. I've allowed the world to get in in place of my relationship with the Son, Jesus. And today, I need to make that right. You, and only you, are called to be the salt and the light. You have a responsibility to the world around you, to your family, to your community, and to your world to be able to share the gospel. And are are you burning bright? Do you have your saltiness? If not, I'm just appealing to you to make that right with God today. This morning, you would repent and say, I want to burn as bright as I can. I want to be as flavorful and as salty as I can, as thirsty for those around me. And if you have a clear conscience about that today, then maybe you would follow the example of Eric Little as he is riding on that train and saying, Oh God, I'm not sure I'm being the best light I can, But in my situation right now, help me, please. Help me to be the light. In my work, in my family, wherever I'm at, help me to be the light. Show me what that looks like. And you know, for Eric, and I think it'd be for you, it was very natural for him. God gave him a desire for sports, so we used it in sports. God gave him the skill of teaching, so we used it in teaching. God shaped him for some things. And he was able to live right out of that. And I think he would do the same for you. So as Miss Karen comes and, and begins to play for us, why don't we just pause for a moment and think, God, am I, am I being the salt? Am I being the light? And if things have crowded out, if there's an eclipse going on, if things have been mixed, why don't you get that right with him today? Why not you stand with me as our music team comes. And I'm going to be here up front. The altar is available to you if you want to pray, a prayer of saying, God, I want to be the salt. I want to be the light. Help me to know what that looks like in the world around me. But this is, this is the responsibility that Jesus has given to us. So why not you respond as God would have you to. I'll be here, and you do as uh, however God leads.